Live from Lemert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app. At KBLA 1580, download the app and take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time, but only by downloading our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast and listen to us at your leisure. Should you miss us any day in real time, but I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour. What if, what if the problem of racism has no solution. What if there's just no solution to the issue of racism as we know it? The argument of Afro-pessimism. Afro-pessimism with Dr. Frank B. Wilderson III in our two. In our third hour, what promises to be a compelling conversation on the modern science of psychology based on one of Yale's most popular courses of all time. Lucky for you, you get to audit that class today for free when Yale professor emeritus Dr. Paul Bloom joins us in our three to discuss his latest work, Psych, the Story of the Human Mind. Paul Bloom of Yale joins us in our three. But to commence today's program, let's talk politics with John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine and the co-author of Bernie Sanders' new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Welcome back, John. How are you, sir? I am well, sir, and it's an honor to be with you. Likewise. Always an honor to be in dialogue with you. Uh, So much to talk about in this hour. Uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, is uh, moments away from giving a major address On the 13th anniversary, believe it or not, of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare uh, is now 13 years old. We'll talk about that in this hour. The Manhattan DA has clapped back on the House GOP's unprecedented inquiry uh, into uh, their investigation of Donald Trump and what we expect may be a pending indictment by that grand jury. Uh, the DA's office uh, clapped back yesterday. We'll talk about that and what they had to say about this um, uh, Republican um, uh, meddling, as it were, <laughs> into their business. We'll talk about that and a great deal more. Let me start, though, John, by um, uh, congratulating you, first of all, on the on the Bernie Sanders text. Um, for those who haven't seen it as yet, what's, what's the book about? The book is really about... Um all the challenges that we have today. I mean, this uh, situation where, you know, we have we have tens of millions of people who either don't have health care coverage or have inadequate health care coverage and are worried on it, you know, all the time about whether if they get sick, they might go bankrupt because health care isn't treated as a right. It's treated as a privilege. Um, and certainly Obamacare made it better, better but it's still we have a, a, a real gap there. Uh, Young people who want to go to college, who have the skills, who have the knowledge, but uh, can't afford it, or if they can't afford it, they end up with huge amounts of debt. Uh, workers who you know show up early, stay late, do everything they're supposed to do, and still don't make a money, enough money to you know keep above the poverty line. And when you put all of these things together, 
I mean, you understand these are the real problems that Americans wrestle with on a daily basis. And yet, so often our discussions in America are about um, somebody down the street that we're not supposed to like or somebody, mm-hmm. you know, at the border that we're not supposed to like or somebody that doesn't look like us that we're not supposed to like. We've got all these fights uh, about personalities, about, you know, groups that are supposed to be divided from one another, and we don't spend enough time talking about the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that as a country, we've let capitalism get out of control. Mm. Yeah. Doesn't mean capitalism has to go away. Doesn't mean, you know, it's not saying you got to get rid of it. It is saying that you can't have it be so out of control, so unregulated, so misdirected that you have a billionaire class that keeps getting richer and everybody else is struggling. Mm. A couple of questions in that regard. Number one, uh, and I'm not naive, of course, in asking this, but at this moment, oh, I know. Yeah, at, at this moment in late modernity, 2023, why is healthcare in the richest nation in the history of the world not a right? Well, it's, it's very profitable for those who uh, who are providing it, right? Mm-hmm. The, the pharmaceutical companies, which are now talking about jacking up prices on COVID shots uh, to astronomical levels, mm-hmm. um, you know, the insurance companies. And, and, you know, really, we, we, we even acknowledge it in our discussions. We talk about a healthcare industry, mm-hmm. right? You know, not healthcare providers, per se. And this isn't, this isn't against doctors. This isn't against nurses. It's not against, you know, your local hospital that may do a great job. You know, that's not the point. The point is that there's a system in place now that prioritizes profits and that, that basically says, you know, to somebody who's sick, You've got to jump through all kinds of hoops just to get the insurance you paid for. Mm-hmm. And um, if you didn't pay for enough and if you don't have it in the right place in the right way, you may get cancer or heart condition or something like that and end up bankrupt. And that's just not that that's misdirected priorities. And Senator Sanders and I make that argument that our priorities need to be redirected um, so that, frankly, uh, health care is treated as a right. Education is treated as a right. Um, doesn't mean that we may not pay a little bit for it, but we're not going to be ruined by it. And then ultimately, when we get this redirection, if and when we ever do, then we get to a situation where, you know, people are really freed. You have a lot more freedom to make mm-hmm. decisions about whether you want to leave a job uh, that you were keeping just because you're, you want to keep that health care uh, for a young person to uh, really follow their dreams and know that they're not going to come out of college with massive debt so that they can go into the career they wanted, not have to, you know, for lack of a better term, sell out and look for something where they can get the biggest paycheck. So there's a lot of freedom that comes with getting a, a better organization of right. our economic system. Before I move forward, um, is it just you, Bernie Sanders, and me, or are there other Americans who think that it is absolutely, um, what's the word I'm looking for, unconscionable, uh, to your earlier point, uh, that the pharmaceutical industry could be looking again to jack up prices on COVID shots. Just days ago, we were told these things were mandatory, right? It was mandatory yeah. to save our country, uh, to deal with this uh, this pandemic. We had to get COVID shots. There were folk who pushed back on that. Many Americans didn't want to get it, didn't trust the science, et cetera, et cetera. But days ago, we were just told that we were, that we had to get these shots. And now, <laughs> days later, they're literally trying to jack the prices up now on you getting a COVID shot. Like, what? How, how does one process that? 
Well, I mean, I think this is this is something that's across all industries. We the pharmaceutical industry stands out because we're really talking about health and and people's lives, and, and that becomes very fundamental. But you know, we're in an era now, Tavis, where um, you know we've got companies that literally report record profits and the same day announce price increases, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. it's we're we're kind of in a situation where it's never enough, right? Uh, the billionaire class—it's never enough. They always—they—they they, they are billionaires now. They want to be trillionaires someday. Um, and for an awful lot of corporations, they're not satisfied with a reasonable profit, uh, with you know a reasonable circumstance. They—they want to make more, more, more. And you get to the heart of the matter when you're saying, you know, when you've got things that people are told they have to have, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. When you're talking about essentials in life. Um, and again, you're right. People may disagree about, you know, whether they, they want the shot, things like that. But if they're told, you know, you got to get this for your job or you got to get this for your schooling or whatever, um, those companies should not be allowed to, you know, jack prices to a level where, you know, somebody in a sense of urgency, right? Maybe if their insurance isn't, you know, up to speed or if, if they've got other challenges, you know, they're, they're going into their pocket and they're deciding, oh, I got to pay this hundred dollars or I got to pay whatever this amount is. And that means, yeah, I may, you know, I'm going to have to not eat so well this week or, or give up other things in my life. Um, we shouldn't, as regards to the issues of healthcare, we shouldn't be in that circumstance in mm-hmm. 2023. Yeah. Um, as I said earlier, today's the 13th anniversary, at least uh, President Biden, uh, moments, away, uh, moments away from now, giving a major address celebrating the 13th anniversary of Obamacare. When we come forward uh, with John Nichols, I want to ask one or two other quick questions right quick um, uh, about his critique of capitalism, given that he has co-authored this book with Bernie Sanders. It's uh, uh, The title is It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. I love that title. It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Co-authored by Bernie Sanders and our guest in this hour, the National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine, John Nichols. A great deal more to unpack with John Nichols in this hour when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Back a bit more with John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine, co-author of the new book with Senator Bernie Sanders. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. In this particular moment, John, which we'll get to in a moment, talking about the banks. Uh, I saw your piece recently how they lobbied for deregulation. Congress capitulated and the banks are collapsing now. We'll come to that in a moment. But given this moment that we are in where people are thinking about the issue of capitalism, given what's happening in the banking sector, what is your critique of capitalism? Look, my critique of capitalism is that uh, it's rooted in the fact I grew up in a small town in, mm-hmm. in rural United States, and uh, and we had a main street uh, with businesses up and down that street run by different folks, and and you know some of them were good folks, some of them maybe not perfect, uh, but you know they were all part of our community, and they were they if they made money, they put that money back into the community, and and you know that was that was a form of capitalism that that worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I know sometimes in a city or a bigger place, you got to get a little bigger, and I understand that as well. But my critique is, and and, and I, I think it's something that runs through the book, that you know we have run into a situation in the United States now where for so long, uh, because of money in politics, because of very, very uh, influential people with a lot of power and a, and a lot of connections, uh, a lot of lobbyists, uh, we've ended up in a situation where we have very little regulation of what our, our pharmaceutical companies do, what our healthcare industry does, what a lot of our industries do, and, and really an insufficient taxation of the very, very wealthy, the billionaires. Mm. Uh, I always re- remind folks that during um, uh, COVID, 
you know, we at the start of COVID, the 600 and roughly 25, 30 billionaires in the United States controlled about uh, 3.5 trillion in wealth. A year or so into it, they had 5 trillion. So while all the rest of us were engaged in shared sacrifice, we had a handful of people who were getting dramatically richer in the midst of this incredibly difficult time. And ultimately, it shouldn't be like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go back to the Franklin Roosevelt model, where Roosevelt said, you know, when the country's in a really tough position, um, those who uh, are making big profits, right, what he would describe, would describe as excess profits, mm-hmm. um, they've got to pay a lot of that back into the, into the uh, Treasury, whether it's in a depression or whether it's in, uh, uh, during a war or something like that. And uh, I think we've lost sight of that, that sense of shared sacrifice as a country. And so that's my critique that uh, we really need to get back to, you know, that sort of FDR model where um, if, if somebody's making a, a huge profit uh, at a time when everybody else is struggling, maybe they should pay a little more taxes. Mm. How, how central, um, again, um, this is, uh, I'm not being sophomoric here, but I, I do want to probe your... No, of your, course not. I want to probe your insight on this. How central is this conundrum of money and politics to the overall malaise, the drama that we're dealing with? I think it's absolutely central to it, yeah. and we don't talk about it enough. I mean, yeah. we're all aware of it, but uh, I live in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, where I live, uh, we have a big Supreme Court race coming up on April 4th. Uh, it's for one seat on the state Supreme Court, and it's looking like uh, roughly you know, 40 to $50 million will be spent. It'll be the most expensive court race in the history of the United States. And um, we're starting to see this again and again all over. Uh, election contests getting dramatically more expensive, and there's a huge reliance on uh, big contributions, big money, whether it comes directly to a candidate or a party or whether it's done through so-called independent expenditures that everybody knows where it's coming from. The end result is that when people get to elected office, um, they've got a lot of strings attached. Not everybody. We have some honorable folks that we can point to, but an awful lot of them come with uh, a sense of uh, loyalty, if you will, to those who paid for their campaigns. And our failure to address money in politics has, has really warped our processes. It impacts debates about, as I said before, health care, education, workplace. Um, and I, I'll give you one quick example. Mm-hmm. Polling shows roughly 70% of Americans, uh, or in, in the 60s, I should say, high, relatively well in the 60s, uh, think you, trade unions are great. They love unions, right? And yet... Um, our unionization rate in the United States is going down, or if at best it's stable and it's very, very low. Now, how do you have that disconnect? Yeah. Well, I can tell you, uh, powerful people lobby to make it hard to join a union. Yeah. We are um, we're in the throes of that right now in L.A., as you well know. The teachers are on you, strike I've here. I've been watching it. Yeah, That's yeah. Good. It's 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 fascinating. Today is day three. It was a three day uh, a called three day strike. Today is the third day. Of this strike, and it's really a, a strike brought on by SEIU 99, uh, the local uh, union here, uh, on behalf of the other workers in the system, the cafeteria workers and the janitors, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. These are the poorest paid people in this system. They average about $25,000 a year in annual income. So the teachers, UTLA, United Teachers Los Angeles, as you know, went out on strike with, uh, in solidarity with um, these other workers represented by SEIU 99. Again, today is the third day of that teacher strike. But it, again, it puts front and center 
the issue, John, of unionization in this country right now and how it is um, that corporations or in this instance, a school board uh, sitting on billions of dollars can be so cheap when it comes uh, to a living wage for everyday people. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, you got to the heart of it right there. And, and you know, this is something that affects the public sector and the private sector. Um, and, and we shouldn't have a situation in the richest country in the world, and frankly, in a, in a city with a great deal of wealth, mm-hmm. um, where somebody uh, gets up before dawn, rides a bus across town to work in a cafeteria, mm. um, works hard all day, gets back, you know, late, late in the day for their own kids, and yet struggles to keep above the poverty line, mm-hmm. struggles to get housing, struggles to, you know, even possibly put something aside for educating their kids down the line. Um, there's got to be a better way to do it. And one of the better ways to do it is to make sure that nobody's working full time, uh, ever goes below that poverty line. And in fact, you know, poverty shouldn't be our baseline. We should be well above that mm-hmm. as a society. Yeah. And that's the, that's the real rub for me that you have Americans who are working full time jobs who are still living below the poverty line. That's the part that's just unacceptable, that you're working full-time uh, and you still yeah. can't raise your head above the poverty line. Um, I, I digress on that particular issue. Um, the book that John has just uh, co-authored with uh, Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, is called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. And in this moment, John, a whole lot of folk are angry about capitalism given what's happening in the banking industry. And I think uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's fair to say that many of us, never mind um, the moves that have been made, never mind the reassuring words of President Biden or the actions of Janet Yellen, there are many people who are still a little scared, and perhaps some folks still, and, and perhaps some of these folks in the banking industry themselves still a little concerned uh, about how shaky things are at the moment. I saw your, re- your recent piece, uh, I love the title, Bankers Lobbied for Deregulation, Congress capitulated, and now banks are collapsing. Uh, unpack that for me briefly here. It's pretty simple. Uh, back when we had the last major meltdown of our banks and of our financial services industry in 2007 and in 2008, um, it didn't just affect the banks. It affected the whole of the economy. Mm-hmm. We had people losing their homes. We had unemployment going through the roof. You remember when Barack Obama became president, he inherited a huge mess, yep. right? And it, it, it affected everything he did as president. And, and the response to that crisis in the fall of 2008 was to bail out the banks uh, and to bail out the, the big corporations. Um, that didn't work out so well. Uh, it didn't ultimately work out so well for a lot of working folks um, and, and in fra- frankly, it, overall for the economy, um, at least in the short term. Now, fast forward to today. Uh, what happened after the 2008 meltdown was that we had a lot of talk about we've got to get our banks under control, so they can't mm-hmm. be, quote-unquote, too big to fail. Yeah. And we put in regulations, we put in rules. The concept was that, you know, if a bank was of a certain size, it's going to have to be monitored closely. In fact, all banks are going to be monitored. Well, the bankers didn't like that. They lobbied very, very hard, and they got a change in the rules in 2018 that said that banks with under $250 billion, that's a quarter of a trillion dollars, mm-hmm. banks with under $250 billion had a, a much more lax uh, oversight, much more relaxed uh, regulation. And um, those are the banks now that are failing, right? Uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature sure. Bank. And, and you know, so we, what happened was Washington, and this is not just Republicans, there are Democrats oh, yeah. for this as well. Yep. They created a circumstance where um, we, we knew that these banks needed to be regulated, and we 
we lowered the regulation and we had this claim that they were quote unquote community banks, mm-hmm. right? Now, you and I know what a community bank is. It's the bank, you know, in our small town or in our neighborhood in the city. Mm-hmm. It's the bank where we know the banker, we know the owner of the bank, right? That's a community bank. Um, these are huge, huge financial institutions. Um, and, you know, with massive amounts of money, very influential in certain industries. And uh, as a country, we just weren't regulating them yeah. sufficiently. And there's more of them. That's the problem. That's why people feel insecure. Yeah. Now, it's true that Silicon Valley Bank made some of its own mistakes. And, and you know, we can talk about that more if you want. But this broader reality that we've got a lot of banks that are underregulated, that don't have sufficient oversight, um, that's why people are nervous. And and they're also concerned about um, how the Biden administration and other folks are responding to this because there seems to be they don't want to call it a bailout but there's an awful lot of a lot of a lot of money flowing toward very wealthy people at at this point feeling a little bit like 2008. Yep, I, two things uh, in that regard. Number one, I'm watching my clock here. We got uh, sports. Uh, uh, news and traffic in about, in about two minutes, so we'll continue when we move forward here. But two things in that regard. Number one, I've said this repeatedly on this program, the president keeps saying no taxpayer dollars will be involved in this. And I ask one simple question. If it ain't our money, whose money is it? I mean, where where, where is the money coming mm-hmm. from? At some point, mm-hmm. at some point, the president has got to come clean. You can't keep telling us that no taxpayer dollars will be involved in this. You don't want to use the word bailout. Well, you, if, if, if it's not our money, then tell me whose money it is that you are using to address this particular issue. I can assure you, one yeah. way or another, when this equation gets solved, it's going to be your money and my money. I can assure you of that, number one. Uh, no, number two, uh, I'm glad you put your finger on this. It's one of the reasons why uh, I'm not brown-nosing here. I'm being honest. It's one of the reasons why I love uh, The Nation magazine, because The Nation calls it as they see it. And I love you and I love your work because you guys are so honest and so transparent. And nobody wants to say this. <clears throat> Everybody's now talking about the meltdown, as it were. Nobody wants to call it a meltdown. But at the end of the day, um, to your point, there were Republicans and Democrats who capitulated when Silicon Valley Bank and these other banks came in and asked for less stringent deregulations. Uh, Mark Warner of Virginia comes to mind. There are any number of other Democrats. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to call them by their name, but Democrats, along with Republicans, allowed this to happen. And here we are again in this mess. And nobody ever seems to me, John, to want to tell the truth about that reality, about Democrats involved in this. Well, that's why I wrote about it, yeah. <laughs> and that's why I, I, I did the vote count. Yeah. I, I did the vote count in my article, and, and in the Senate, you had 17 Democrats who yeah. voted with 50 Republicans to do this. They made it a bipartisan bill. In the House, he had 33 Democrats who voted with the Republicans to do this. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's too easy to just blame Republicans. Sure, sure, uh, sure. The fact of the matter is this, uh, this, bank, this banking lobbying uh, uh, affects both parties. Yep. Um, and that's why, again, I, I love The Nation. I, lo- I love John's pieces. The piece I just uh, referenced a moment ago, you might want to find it online at The Nation. Uh, bankers lobbied for deregulation. Congress capitulated and now banks are collapsing. It's the best thing I've read so far on how this really happened and who's really to blame. And some of that, uh, uh, those persons to blame uh, vote like you and I vote. Uh, I'll leave it at that. When we come forward, we'll continue our conversation with John Nichols. We'll talk about the president uh, giving a speech uh, any moment now. Uh, about the 13th anniversary of Obamacare, the Manhattan DA claps back, uh, and a few other things to get to with John Nichols when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. He's John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation Magazine, co-author of the new book with Senator Bernie Sanders. It's called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. 
And we've been talking about why so many of us are, in fact, angry right about now about capitalism. And one of those issues is what's happening in the banking industry. Uh, what, let me let me ask one uh, quick question about that, John, before we move forward. So what, what do you think this story is going? It's, it's always, uh, of course, your job as a writer uh, to stay ahead of the story and to kind of uh, have some sense of, of, of where the narrative is taking us. Uh, we know where we are right now, but what do you, what do you, where, where's this banking story going to going to lead, you think? Well, let's hope it leads toward uh, some serious congressional discussion about reinstating uh, some of the Dodd-Frank regulations, particularly on these regional banks with as much as $250 billion, uh, but a much more lax regulation than the bigger banks. So that's, that's one thing to do. Right. Uh, second, we, we need to uh, look at how the FDC, FDIC operates. The FDIC is a Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Mm-hmm. It's a insurance uh, agency, essentially, and it's insurance for the banks, right? Um, the banks pay in uh, a portion, a small amount, and uh, and that's supposed to take care of situations where a bank gets in trouble. But when we've got a lot of vulnerable banks, and we've got a couple major banks going down, uh, we have to have a better sense of, of how the FDIC should operate, and whether it really should, as President Biden has suggested here, uh, at least in this case with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, of uh, Back up investors uh, not with up to two hundred fifty thousand, but with millions and millions of dollars. Uh, that's putting the U.S. on the hook. And if we do that, if we set that new standard, then the FDIC is not going to be able to sustain. Um, you know, if we have a real a major meltdown, it, and so that's going to where you get into the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And the final thing I just recommend is um, we've got to take a lot much more serious look at the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. The Federal Reserve is supposed to be monitoring these banks. They're supposed to be aware of what's going on and have a good sense of how to manage it. Um, they stumbled on this pretty badly in a number of cases. And when they're you know, raising these interest rates, which I understand why they're doing it to deal with inflation, but when they're doing that, that has a real impact on the banks themselves. Yeah. And they've got to they've think about that. So that's where I hope it's going. Mm-hmm. But I fear, very quickly, I fear that you know, we may you know, move on to the next story and, and you know, lose sight of this, not... Mm-hmm get the re-regulation, not, you know, re-examine the FDIC, not look at how the Fed operates, and uh, remain very, very vulnerable to uh, another meltdown. It remain vulnerable and just uh, magically return to business as usual, right? That's how we do it, uh, yep. sadly, in, in D.C. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, all the drama that Barack Obama inherited when he became president. Uh, indeed, he did. Uh, but I think it's fair to say, and if he were here right now, I'm sure he'd say the same thing, the thing he's probably most proud of is the Affordable Care Act, uh, derisively uh, called uh, Obamacare initially, and now everybody calls it Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we are now celebrating, the White House is, the Biden and Harris administration, celebrating today uh, the 13th anniversary of Obamacare. The president giving a major speech um, in a moment, if not already started. Um, and uh, then he's off to Canada to talk to Justin Trudeau. But Today, celebrating uh, 13 years of Obamacare. Uh, some quick data here. Uh, HHS, uh, Health and Human Services, uh, uh, a new report out today shows that more than 40 million people, 40 million fellow citizens are currently enrolled in marketplace or Medicaid expansion coverage related to provisions of the Affordable Care Act. This is the highest total on record. Uh, again, uh, the, the uh, Vice President uh, Harris and President Biden are Celebrating that, of course, Joe Biden was vice president for Barack Obama when uh, uh, the ACA got through. There are many of us then, John, I think you were one of them. I, I certainly was. There are many of us then who were disappointed 
um, on, on the one hand, glad to see that something got done. On the other hand, I, my critique was that Obama and at the time, uh, Rahm Emanuel as chief of staff negotiated against themselves. Uh, and I think more could have been done uh, on the uh, health care front. Um, uh, they promised on the campaign trail, that is to say, Obama promised universal health care. This ain't quite universal health care. But to his credit, at least something got done. Thirteen years later, what do you make of what he got done? Well, I think it's huge. Look, uh, we should fully recognize what an important part of a lot of people's lives this is. This sure. is, this is a, uh, a reform of the health care system that made it possible for a lot of people to get access to health care. And it's, and it's gotten better, right, over the years. Mm-hmm. It's become a much more efficient and workable program. So uh, much like Social Security, you, you see an improvement. Uh, but uh, and, and so give President Obama his due. Sure. You give Roosevelt his due for Social Security. Mm-hmm. But then recognize that it's our job to make the improvement, right? Mm-hmm. And the improvement we've got to make is to get ourselves to a situation where everybody has absolutely sufficient health care so that if they get sick, um, and they don't have the threat of bankruptcy. They don't have to have the threat of economic ruin. And Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act has provided a lot of security, a lot of protection, and we ought to celebrate it. There's no reason to, to talk it down, but there is a reason to say this is not enough. Mm-hmm. This is not sufficient, and we've got to look. You know, it's interesting, the president's going to Canada. Yep. Uh, it, it, when he's up there in Canada, uh, he can talk to Justin Trudeau about the Canadian health care system, which is very efficient and which provides an immense amount of health care at a lower cost. Yeah. There, there was a point in time, and I want to ask you whether or not uh, we have uh, moved from that particular space. But there was a point in time, as you recall, that Republicans were doing every single thing they could every waking hour of the day, to your point, to talk down Obamacare, to destroy it. Um, to uh, there were Supreme Court challenges. I mean, I mean, we we remember that moment where they would determine, uh, as Mitch McConnell said, the day Obama got inaugurated, to make sure he was not going to be successful as a president. So they, they have attacked this thing 18 ways from Sunday. Um, I'm not covering this every day, but it seems to me, uh, from the outside looking in, that they sort of backed off of the attack of uh, Obamacare, uh, which would mean that it is now going to be you know, not just codified, uh, in in uh, in in the way Americans um, receive their health care, but codified, in fact, even in the law. So maybe uh, having mm-hmm. said that, I'm misreading that. Have, have they backed off of their 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 vicious daily attacks on the program? Uh, yeah, I think they have because they they know an awful lot of people who they represent are relying on the program. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean that they it doesn't mean that they're fully on board for supporting it. They still there's still efforts to undermine it at, at various points. Mm-hmm. But that huge push to to take it down has you know pretty much disappeared. Reason for that, obviously, it's a popular program. Yeah. Uh, also, one that people recognize is necessary. And you know this has happened before. Yeah. Um, you know that that you had a lot of Republicans and and even some Democrats who were very critical of Social Security back in the 1930s. Yeah. And boy, that all that whole New Deal program ultimately came to be very well regarded. In fact, Eisenhower embraced most of it. Yeah. And then again, you had a lot of folks, many of them Republicans, attacking Medicare and Medicaid back in the 1960s when LBJ was doing it. And uh, they still sometimes want to nickel and dime those programs, want to go at them, but. Um, it's it's very rare the political figure now who says that you ought to get rid of Social exactly. Security, Medicare, or Medicaid. Nope. Speaking of Republicans, let me pivot to another piece I saw uh, of yours uh, uh, recently, um, where you argue that Republicans are not really trying to win popular vote majorities, 
unpack that for us right quick here. Sure. Um, you know, we've we've seen it, frankly, in the last couple of election cycles. You know, in, in 2016, the Republican presidential candidate, Donald Trump, lost the popular vote by 3 million votes. Mm-hmm. In, in 2020, he lost it by 7 million votes. And and so what has happened is that that Republicans have decided they want to win close, right? They, they want to win, even if they don't get a majority of the vote, they want to win in enough places via the Electoral College, via gerrymandering, via small states that have disproportionate influence in the U.S. Senate, so they can govern, uh, but they are not inclined, and there, there's a lot of evidence of this, to campaign in a way that really does build a big popular majority. Like, Eisenhower used to win with, you know, getting close to 60% of the vote, mm-hmm. right? It's possible to do that as a Republican, but to do that, you have to be open to, you know, some compromise, to some outreach to, to you know, communities that don't traditionally vote Republican. They have abandoned a lot of that. And as a result, um, that really feeds the divisions in our country. Instead of, you know, trying to build big majorities, which requires you to have a, a popular platform, they've tended increasingly in recent years to be much more satisfied with a, a very um, rough, uh, aggressive, uh, challenging platform, which does divide people. Uh, it certainly energizes their base, but it's not going for that, you know, that, that sort of level of, of victory that really might be a unifying victory for the country. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, Republicans, when we come forward, um, we'll talk about Republicans specifically in the House. Um, if you were listening to our program earlier this week, and I hope you were, we're on every day at 9 a.m. to 12 noon Pacific time. Uh, Republican lawmakers earlier this week sought information uh, about this probe by the Manhattan DA. Uh, specifically, they wanted... Um, uh, Alvin Bragg, the, the DA in Manhattan, the first African-American to be DA in, in Manhattan. Uh, they wanted him and his office to show up for, for a congressional inquiry uh, about his investigation. What are you doing up there in New York? And 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 and, um, and, and why are we hearing stories about a, uh, an imminent indictment, uh, an arrest of, of Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera? So they, they literally had the gall uh, to call for a congressional investigation into the investigation of Donald Trump in Manhattan. Well, the Manhattan DA's office, Alvin Bragg, has finally clapped back. Uh, we'll unpack that for you when we come forward with John Nichols on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, let me not uh, color my, uh, my 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 entry question uh, too much for John Nichols. He doesn't need a lot of detail. Uh, he's covering this stuff every day. So the broad question to begin with, and then we'll get to the clapback. Um, your thoughts, John, I've not had a chance to talk to you since all this started to unfold uh, a week ago, uh, I guess last weekend, when Donald Trump suggested, I'm about to be indicted. I'm about to be arrested, and I want you all to know, and I'm calling for protest, and that really hasn't materialized in part because um, if you follow what's happening online, um, the Trumpsters have figured out, uh, many of them have argued, in fact, that uh, showing up at these protests uh, would get them in trouble, would get many of them arrested, like thousands have been uh, following what happened on January the 6th. So Trump continues to call for protests. At the moment, at least, we don't see any evidence online that that is actually materializing who knows what's happening, uh, you know, uh, under the surface. But but your thoughts, generally speaking, on the drama uh, involving Donald Trump and his uh, suggesting I'm about to be arrested. Well, he was wrong. Uh, he, he wasn't about to be arrested. Uh, it's obviously now we've gone for the better part of a week. And uh, it may, in fact, be the case that that there is an indictment. And it may, in fact, be the case that that there could be an arrest. But But that hasn't happened yet. And I, I think that, that one of the things that we should really be concerned about at this point is a uh, kind of a, 
the way the media especially has responded to this with an intensive coverage every day of, well, maybe it'll be tomorrow. Maybe mm-hmm. it'll be tomorrow. Maybe it'll be today. Maybe it'll be today. Um, I think we run the risk of, of uh, frankly, indictment fatigue and that people, you know, when you, it's like the boy who cried wolf. If you keep saying it's going to happen yeah. uh, and it doesn't happen, people at a certain point start to, to uh, become dubious about what all's going on. Uh, to some extent, maybe Donald Trump wanted that to be the case, right? That, that there was confusion about this. But I would hope that our networks, our, our TV networks especially, um, turn to the legal experts on this, not yeah. the pundits, but the people who really know how a grand jury works. And I think what you will hear is that, that Alvin Bragg, for all the criticism he's getting, for all the attacks he's facing, uh, has managed this in a very traditional, very responsible way. Yeah. And, and yeah, grand jury takes time. Mm. Uh, sometimes you realize you need more evidence. Sometimes you need more witnesses. Um, and so I, I think a lot of the attacks on Bragg are incredibly unfair. Uh, and I think also that, uh, in general, we should pause, see what happens, um, and respond when it happens rather than spending yeah. days, even weeks, speculating and not covering sometimes all the other really big stories like the stuff we've been talking about on this show. Well, his, uh, his office has finally clapped back. They sent a letter um, to Republican yeah. lawmakers uh, saying that uh, they lacked a legitimate basis for congressional inquiry uh, and further saying that um, uh, their request for information only came, uh, only came forward after Donald Trump, to your point, created a false expectation that he would be arrested the next day and his lawyers reportedly urged you to intervene. That's a quote directly from this letter mm-hmm. sent from Alvin Bragg's office to the uh, congressional Republicans who were insisting that he show up for a hearing. When we come forward in our remaining moments with John Nichols, I want to come back to just two things. One, the point he just made a moment ago about the way the media is covering this. I've indicted the media many, many times. I'm, I'm ashamed oftentimes in my own profession um, because when it comes to stuff like this, all they cover is the horse race. They can't really focus on what really matters, as John said, because they're covering the horse race. Uh, but it also underscores for me how Donald Trump, you can talk about Donald Trump all you want. It shows, even in this weakened state, that Donald Trump still knows how to control the media narrative. And they will still line up. The corporate media will still line up to cover uh, the narrative um, uh, that Donald Trump uh, advances. And I, I want to get John's take on that. And then we'll close our conversation by bringing this thing full circle back to his new book with Bernie Sanders, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Uh, and I've got one final question about that. When we come forward with John Nichols. John Nichols, uh, i got four minutes left in conversation with you. Now, thank you, as always, my friend, for, for this hour. Uh, very quickly here, um, what do you make of, the, of, of your own commentary? It, it seems to suggest to me, which I'm not, again, naive about, that Donald Trump, even in this weakened state, can still control a corporate news media narrative. It's absolutely the case. And this is something that we should give Donald Trump credit for. <laughs> I mean, he, he figured out. Um, long before just about anybody else in politics, how to how to use social media uh, to dominate traditional media, right? And that's one of the reasons he became president of the United States in 2016. Uh, he continues to do that. The question is um, whether our our media companies, our big media companies, have have figured out you know how this is really working. And uh, and it is you know you blame Trump, you criticize Trump. But what you also have to recognize is that some of these media companies are so desperate for clicks and ratings yeah. uh, that they go to you know essentially a lowest common denominator of every debate of every moment, sure. and uh, people click on Trump, uh, and and that's 
that's a challenge because we're now, you know, what are we, six years into, six, yeah. seven years into uh, a period where it's essentially we have so much of our politics framed on one man rather than, you know, on these broader issues and broader ideas. Yep. Um, let me close on this note. i got two minutes left here. Uh, I want to close where we began. Uh, John Nichols is National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine, but he's also co-author of the new book with Senator Bernie Sanders. The book is called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. And I want to close with this. Bill Clinton famously said years ago, as you well know, uh, of affirmative action, mend it but don't end it. Well, we know that's about to not, <laughs> we know it's about to get ended now, the affirmative action case. Uh, we're waiting on a final ruling from the Supreme Court. None of us is holding our breath. We know that affirmative action as we know it is about to end. Uh, my question is, if uh, given your critique of capitalism that we discussed earlier in our conversation, how do we mend it but don't end it? Oh, uh, look, the, the way to mend it but don't end it is to go back to our basic values, right? And to say that, you know, a, a small business owner who's got a great idea, um, more power to them. But um, don't let some big multinational corporation or some incredibly wealthy person use their wealth to monopolize, mm. create a monopoly within their own industry, and then also to monopolize our political discourse with campaign contributions, with lobbying, so that they end up getting in a stronger position. The fact of the matter is we have too many industries where there's too little competition and where there's too little uh, creativity because we've ended up letting the super rich, the super big, the super powerful dominate uh, so much of our discourse and, frankly, so much of our commerce. Yeah. His name is John Nichols, and uh, we uh, respect him immensely. Uh, we love having him on this program as a contributor. And uh, his um, his book with Bernie Sanders out now is called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. I highly recommend it. He is the National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine. John, we'll do it again, man. Thanks for your time. All the best to you, my friend. I sure look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Likewise. Um, thank you for coming on. Uh, hour two of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports. We're glad to have you tuned in. You are listening right now to Unapologetically Progressive, KBLA Talk 1580.